Good morning. Welcome to Willingdon. As uh, you just saw, we're continuing in the First Peter series. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to First Peter chapter 4. Uh, we're going to go into verses 12 to 19. If you take the Pew Bible, it's page 1016. I'll have to warn you, this morning's message is an un-Canadian kind of message, which will make sense to you shortly as we, we walk into some of this challenging text uh, before us. Bless you. <laughs> I'm just going to pray before we jump in. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for every person who's here this morning. Uh, your word tells us that we come to you because you draw us. That means we're all here because you want us here, uh, which tells me you want to speak something into our hearts and our minds uh, throughout our experience this morning, whether that's through the message or worship or conversations we have. And I just pray that our hearts and minds will be open for what it is that you want to say to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we all have expectations. It's a very normal thing for us to have expectations of each other. We have expectations of our relationships. We have, if we're married, we have expectations of our spouses. If we have, if we have children, we have expectations of our children or of our parents. Uh, we have expectations of our jobs. We have expectations of our church. We have expectations of God. Uh, this morning, you came with expectations. You have expectations about perhaps who you would meet. You had expectations about uh, maybe the food in the cafe or what the service would be like. That's a pretty normal thing for us to go through life with expectations. A good day or a bad day is actually not determined by what happens on that day. It's determined by the expectations we have of the day. So if our expectations are really high and they aren't met, it's a bad day. If that day we have low expectations and they're far exceeded, it's a wonderful day. We also have expectations of God. I don't know what your expectations are of God or what they were when, if you're a Christ follower when you decided to follow him. Or perhaps this morning you're here trying to figure out who Jesus is, and I don't know what your expectations are of what it would mean to follow him and the implications for your life, but perhaps this morning will help you understand that a bit better. Now, for some people, you know, when they decide to follow Jesus, give their, give their hearts to God, they assume now life is going to be perfectly smooth sailing. It's like, you know, you're going to go to church, so you wake up in the morning, and everything should be working perfectly. You drive, and you'll never get a speeding ticket on the, way to, on the way to church. And if you happen to get pulled over, the officer will say, I'm sorry I made a mistake. It was the car behind you. I really apologize. You know, and when you get to church, your perfect parking spot is waiting for you right outside the doors. Right? That's what happens when you become a Christ follower. And I've had many people over the years come to me and say, you know, I gave my life to God. Why is not everything working out for me? Why, isn't, why is everything not falling into place? What are the ex appropriate expectations? What does biblical history show us? What does the Bible show us? If you look at the life of Christ, we know that Jesus, of course, died a martyr's death. He was persecuted. If you look at the lives of the apostles, 11 of the 12 died a martyr's death. If you look throughout church history, we see people who were persecuted, people who were maligned, people who were slandered because they identified with Jesus. Now, I know that's not very Canadian because we're used to a fairly comfortable life here. So what should we be expect 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter is saying, don't be surprised by difficulty. The contemporary English version puts it this way. Dear friends, don't be surprised or shocked that you are going through testing that is like walking through fire. Now this is in relationship to the people in the Greco-Roman world who identified as Christ followers, as Christians. Peter is writing to them and saying, don't be surprised if you're being persecuted for your faith. Don't be surprised if people are giving you a hard time because you identify with Christ. The first point in your outline is simply this. Don't be surprised when following Jesus leads to suffering. In fact, as a Christ follower, if you look at where most Christians are in the world, what you could say is be surprised if identifying with Christ has not led to suffering. That would actually be a more normal experience for most Christians today and throughout history. But not really a Canadian experience. In Canada, it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. We've enjoyed up until probably the 1960s very uh, privileged status, probably, as a church, as Christians in Canada. In fact, let me give you a very brief history lesson this morning. In December of 1866, there were representatives from what was then known as Canada plus New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. They were at meetings in London, England, where they were processing the details of the British North, North America Act, trying, what, trying to decide what to name this new territory. And in those meetings, there was a gentleman by the name of Sir Leonard Tilley. And he'd been in the meetings all day and then uh, retired for a night. And his practice was to read a chapter of the Bible prior to going to sleep. That evening, he read Psalm 72 and came across verse 8, which reads, He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The next day... Sir uh, Leonard Tilly went down to the meetings and suggested that this new territory be named the Dominion of Canada, based on Psalm 72, verse 8, which is still in our charter to this day. If you fast forward to 1921, the architect, John A. Pearson, was designing the new parliament buildings. And he decided, in deference to our forefathers and to this history, that over the three windows on the Peace Tower, there should be scripture inscribed over those windows. So on the east window is Psalm 72, 8, or the first half of it. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea. The south window is Psalm 72, verse 1. Give the king thy judgment, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. And over the west window is Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's our current parliament buildings in Canada. And we've enjoyed this place of privilege, really, for a very, very long time. But friends, unfortunately, that day is quickly leaving us as a country. Today, parts of the people are trying to designate parts of the Bible as hate literature in Canada, so that if I were to preach it, uh, I, could, I could be arrested. It's moving in that direction. It hasn't happened yet, but people are lobbying for that to happen. Uh, such uh, biblical values as the dignity of human life, the protection of a fetus in a womb, uh, sexual restraint for relational health, sanctity of marriage, taking responsibility for our actions is often being minimized. All these things are being pushed aside 
in Canadian culture. Uh, truth has become negotiable based often on personal thoughts and feelings without regard for facts or evidence. Freedom of speech is no longer practiced or promoted in many universities or considered appropriate often by our governments. We have to say the right thing. We can't say what we actually are, allow, are able to say by our laws and by our human rights or charter of rights and freedoms. That's the changing landscape we live in. I know that can sound depressing and you're wondering, why did I come to church to be encouraged this morning? Well, there's more that God wants to say. So even though God created this world to be free from sin and suffering, we know that sin entered the world and everything changed. And all of creation longs for the day when Jesus returns and there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more disease, no more injustice. When all those things are brought into the reality of the kingdom of God and they are dealt with once and for all as described so wonderfully in the book of Revelation chapter 21. But that's not the reality for many Christians today, and it wasn't Peter's reality, and it wasn't the reality of the people that he was writing to in this book. And Peter's letter is a pastoral word addressing the reality of people living in the Greco-Roman world where evil, sin, and suffering, where daily experiences, where persecution for being a Christ follower was a very real experience for people. And I think his word is a word for us today even in our Western Canadian context. Because if sin and evil targeted the perfect human being, being Jesus Christ, then those who claim his name, those who are Christ followers, should not be surprised that sin and evil would target us as well. Why would we be exempt if he was not exempt? Why would we get a pass if he didn't? And the life of Christ would really show us that suffering for, for our faith in him is actually normal. So Peter is writing at a time when Christian values and the resulting way of life dramatically contrasted with the Greco-Roman way of life. So if someone was a Christ follower in the, in the day when this was written, then it was obvious by their lifestyle, by their words, by their actions, that they were Christ followers. Now the reality is in our world, since the inception of Canada until perhaps the last uh, number of decades, it wasn't so clear. You would not really know if you met someone if they were a Christ follower or not because our culture and, and uh, sort of Christian values, they all kind of mesh together. In the last decades, it's changing a bit, but it's still not that obvious the way it would have been to Peter's audience. So, given the context, given that suffering is inevitable for Christ followers, what should we do? What should they do in their first century context? What, what should we do? And Peter tells us in verse uh, 13 of chapter 4, and the second point in your outline is simply this. We should celebrate when we share in Christ's sufferings. The good news and the bad news is that we should be throwing a party when we suffer uh, for following Jesus. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So you, have, you should rejoice and wonderful joy. Things that, given the context, we would think, why would he say that? Why didn't he say, well, you should endure? He says, no, no, rejoice. You should hang on. No, rejoice. You should just grin and bear it. No, rejoice. And then live in anticipation of the wonderful joy 
of the return of Christ. So my, uh, my daily commute is Highway 1. I live in Surrey right now, so I drive 22 kilometers down Highway 1. And uh, there's days, particularly when I'm going home, I'll, uh, I'll call up my wife and I'll say, Hi, I'm on my favorite parking lot. And she'll go, oh, Highway 1. She knows I'm being sarcastic, and so is she. And I said, yep, right again. But it's interesting to me as I'm driving in in the morning, uh, and uh, often it's below the speed limit anyway because you can't go the speed limit. Uh, if you see a policeman at the side of the road, suddenly in front of you, all you see is red lights. Now, the fact is no one's driving the speed limit anyway, usually, at that time of day. They're all driving below it, but the sense of guilt overcomes everyone And suddenly they drop their cell phones, right? It's probably some of you guys just saying. Their cell phones are dropped, hands are on the wheel, and they're slowing down, even though there's no reason to. And just the presence of authority at the side of the road terrifies everybody, and they think, I must be doing something wrong. So probably, I don't know, 80% of the people have false guilt, and 20% have real guilt, because they are doing something wrong. But everybody slows down. Because the presence of authority that could actually pull you over and ticket you and uh, charge you a large fine for something or perhaps even impound your vehicle is enough to make everyone feel guilty, even if it's false guilt. Peter is talking about the ultimate authority coming when the glory of Christ is revealed. So what will happen when the authority, the ultimate judge, is revealed? When judgment will take place for all of humanity? How will Christ's followers then respond? Are they going to be looking over their shoulder going, oh no, I must be speeding, I must be doing something wrong? No. We don't respond with fear, we don't respond with guilt. For following Jesus, there is no regret, there is no fear, there is no sense of being caught doing something wrong. We live with rejoicing because the King of Kings is here, the one who is bringing glory to reality, the one who's taking care of injustice and all things that are wrong and evil, has come to make things right and make things whole. And it's time, and when that time we understand that our sufferings, if you have experienced them, are not in vain. Peter's point is suffering for allegiance in Christ should bring us great joy. Why? Because we are focused on the the eternal reality of the coming kingdom. We're awaiting for the full revelation of Christ's glory, his goodness, and his rule. Society may judge the gospel to be irrelevant or even evil, but it is God's judgment that will ultimately stand. And his judgment is true, and it is right, and it is just. The Christ follower who remains loyal to Christ and stands strong in the face of persecution is responding to the eternal reality that will outlast death and human history. That's the beauty of the coming of our King. But often we're so focused on the here and now. We're so focused on our comfort. It's the Western way. But I want you also to think about the person who's writing this. Think about 1 Peter Think about Peter, rather, and his story. So if you go back to just before the the crucifixion of Christ, right? Peter is standing there and Jesus is saying, I need to go to the cross, I need to go to Jerusalem. And uh, Peter's saying, no, 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 you you don't need to do that. And uh, he says, no, Jesus says, no, I need to do that. Well, Peter says, no matter what happens, right, I will be with you. 
I will never forsake you. I will never run away. I don't care if they threaten me with death. I will be there for you, Jesus. Three hours later, four hours later, whatever it was, Peter's around the fire. Don't you know Jesus? Jesus? Who's Jesus? Never heard of the man. Weren't you one of it? No, no. I'm just warming myself here. Don't know who you're talking about. Don't have a clue. Not, not sure what the commotion's about. I'm just here to get warm. And of course, the rooster crows as you read the story. Jesus, Peter remembers that Jesus said, you will deny me three times, and Peter is weeping horribly. And you fast forward the story, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Peter goes back to fishing, and then Jesus shows up on that beach, and, and as they talk, and I, I think about Peter going to see Jesus and wondering what will happen. As Peter's denial ruined absolutely everything. And of course, Jesus comes to him and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do, Lord. And Jesus then answers or responds by asking Peter to be responsible for that which I believe is most precious to Jesus. Then feed my sheep. He responds three times to match the three times that Peter denied. And there's this amazing reinstatement. And I think when we read this, and when Peter is talking about identifying with Christ, that current suffering is nothing compared to future glory that we will experience as Christ followers. I think what he is thinking about is the fact of, I denied Jesus once, and he in his grace reinstated me and commissioned me for ministry. And I know what it's like to deny Christ. I know what it's like to buckle in the face of persecution and fear, and I never want to do that again, and I don't want anyone else to experience that. So I am begging you. I am encouraging you. I am trying to motivate you never to deny Jesus because of what I've been through. I think that's what Peter is saying here. I'm taking liberties. I'm reading between the lines. But I look at Peter's story, and I go, why is he so passionate? Because he's lived it. I think he's passionate because he's lived it. And then he goes on to say, out of his own experience, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Third point in your outline, you are truly blessed when the Holy Spirit rests on you. I think the word blessed right now is one of the most overused and misused words in the English language, especially if you're on social media, right? Hashtag blessed is used for everything, you know, and generally it means something like, you know, everything is going my way, hashtag blessed, you know, I'm really lucky, hashtag blessed, or the, uh, the false humility, right? I got the front row tickets to the concert without saying, and no one else did, hashtag blessed, right? It's some form of that. It's trivializing the word blessing. Uh, You know, I used to sign my emails blessings. I went, I actually can't do that anymore. That word's been ruined. I need a new word. Because it, it means almost like good luck, you know. And that's not how God means it. What Peter is saying is that suffering and is not about building character or self-improvement, even though it might do those things. When you suffer for the name of Christ, for identification with him, 
the blessing is that the Spirit of God, and he says the, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you, which means that it's the Spirit of God that gives you the courage to walk forward. It's the Spirit of God that carries you through your difficulty. It's the Spirit of God that gives you the strength to put one foot in front of the other one and continue to go to move forward. It's the Spirit of God that walks with you and transforms you increasingly through that experience. It's the Spirit of God that makes you willing to be obedient rather than to compromise. It's the Spirit of God that does that. It's the Spirit of God that motivates Christ followers who live in persecution every day in other parts of the world to tell us Westerners, do not give up in prosperity what we would never give up in persecution. It's the Spirit of God that does that. It's the Spirit of God that takes Peter then and as he preaches and he gets flogged for his preaching and he walks out of that and says, I feel so blessed and so honored to be flogged for the name of Christ. It's the Spirit of God that encourages him so that when he's threatened with death, he says, should I listen to men or should I listen to God? That's not even a question. I'm listening to God. It's the Spirit of God that gave him the courage then to be martyred as he was, as history tells us. God has not abandoned Christians who suffer. He is fully present with them. And a suffering Christ follower is blessed because the same Spirit that rested on the suffering Christ also rests on the suffering Christ follower. And our suffering and identification with Jesus is a is a prelude of the glory that is to come at his return when he establishes his, his kingdom. It was a precursor of glory for Jesus and it's a precursor for us. Now also to, to ensure that people don't misinterpret their suffering and think that they are suffering for things that actually are self-inflicted, Peter goes on to give instruction about that in verse 15. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or a, an evildoer or as a meddler. It's an interesting combination of uh, behaviors. From murderer to meddler. He puts them all in one group. Why is he saying this? The fourth point in the outline. Don't confuse self-inflicted suffering for God's absence in your life. Don't confuse self-inflicted suffering for God's absence in your life. The first three categories listed are, I think, are fairly clear, fairly obvious. They go from greater uh, to lesser severity. Murder and theft were prohibited in the Ten Commandments. They were prohibited in Greco-Roman law. We don't know if Peter's readers committed such crimes, uh, but we know that some of them were accused of evil doing. If you look at First uh, Peter chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen, it mentions that there. And Peter says, "I don't want you to live in any way that you could be accused of evil doing, other than if people are actually lying about you. Like if they're lying about you, that's well, you can't do anything about that. But live in such a way that they can't accuse you of that." And then he adds the last category, which is meddler, which I find fascinating. Uh, it's very interesting. It's not obvious. We don't know exactly what he meant by being a meddler. It could have well been that this was behavior that the Christians that Peter is writing to, that they behaved in such a way that they weren't quite aware of, that it actually was inappropriate. That's possible. What kind of behavior is meddling? Well, commentator J.H. Eliot gives some suggestions. One of them is, he says, meddling is the disdaining, disdaining the behavior of non-Christians because we claim to be morally superior as Christians. 
So he's saying, if you're behaving in such a way, if you're being so self-righteous and behaving someone who doesn't believe in Christ uh, and looking down on them because they don't behave the way you think they should, then you're being a meddler. He says, do not hold them. And the Apostle Paul speaks to that too. He says, do not hold people who do not believe in Christ to the same standard that you hold those two who do say they claim a belief in Christ. So Eliot says, that could have been a meddler. Another one uh, category is with families. He says, interfering with family relationships or stirring up problems in family relationships. Now it seems to me that I don't care what culture you come from, I think every culture has family meddlers. I know I've seen them in my family. It's just, it just seems to be a regular deal. The culture doesn't matter. It seems to be a human deal. Someone in our family system seems to think they know better and is going to let us know. That seems to be just... And he's saying, no, don't call that persecution. That's self-inflicted choices. The last category Eliot talks about, he says, perhaps it's, it's tactless attempts at trying to force people to become Christ followers. And I think what he's saying is you need to treat people with honor and respect just like Jesus did. Jesus always invited people to follow. He called them to a high commitment, but he was never tactless. He was always gracious in calling people to himself. Now, one of the things we always have to try and figure out is when we are being meddlers. And I think I finally figured out a test for meddling. So uh, at Easter, on Good Friday... Um, I was here at the services and then uh, jumped in a car with my wife and drove to Calgary. Got there at about 2 in the morning, or a little after 2 in the morning. And, uh, and then a few weeks later, my wife, she had stayed in Calgary. She says, hey, you got a, a picture in the mail. I said, a picture? What did I get a picture of in the mail? She says, well, it's a picture of your car. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Photo radar in Calgary. So I was back there a little while ago. She goes, here's the picture. Except it's all black. Because it was at 2 in the morning. I'm like, great, I'm off the hook. They cannot tell which vehicle is in here. So I phoned them up. Uh, there's a phone call, a number you can call. And the, and the police officer says, says, well, see, the pictures are clear on our computers. But when we print it out, often it's not as clear. So I'll email you the picture. They email me the picture. And actually, I can see my license plate. So I started thinking through all the excuses in my head about why I should get off on this ticket. And, uh, you know, that, I think there's a good indication there. And you think back to, to uh, people making excuses and how, and how that goes back in time. So here's the first time I can think of in history when someone made an excuse. The woman you gave me made me do it. <laughs> right? First chapter of the book of Genesis. Right, Adam, the woman you gave me, he's making excuses. I think when we are engaged in behavior where we're making excuses for what we're doing, we're probably meddling. I think if I'm self-justifying my behavior and it's impacting other people and it's causing conflict, I think that's a pretty good test. So I just made that up. That's up, you know, you can blame it on me. But if you look at it and you go, okay, what's happening in my life? I'm getting persecuted. Well, are you really or is it self-inflicted? Is it self-inflicted? Is it because you claim the name of Christ and you're following him and living in obedience to him? Or is it because decisions that you're making? It's because you're trying to be morally superior 
or you're trying to be coercive and trying to force someone to follow Jesus. Peter always teaches, throughout his teaching, he always says, I want you to live in such a way, Christ followers, that you are above reproach, that you are above being accused of meddling, that your suffering is not self-inflicted. You are to treat everyone with honor. But if you suffer because your beliefs, your words, and your actions are consistently in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ, do not be ashamed if society rejects you, marginalizes you, or persecutes you. In fact, in verse 16, he puts it this way. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let him glorify God in the name of Christ. And I think we can suffer from shame. We think, I think that if, we, if people are persecuting us, we can wonder if we are foolish to put our faith in Christ. If people are maligning us or, or insulting us, we can think we are foolish for believing in the resurrection. If we come from an honor-shame society or family system, we feel the, the ostracization of being left out by family because we claim the name of Christ, and we wonder, is this worth it? Friends, this is being written by someone who understood that. Peter grew up as a Jew. Honor and shame society is part of the Jewish world. And when Peter said, Jesus is the Messiah, a whole bunch of people in his world would have said, no, you're wrong, and they would have shunned him for for making that claim about Jesus. He knows what he's writing about because he's lived it. He knows what he's writing about because he's lived it. Peter understood the cost of following Jesus. He understood that being a witness is not about freedom, Being a witness is about obedience. He also knew that God had a bigger plan, which he alludes to now in verse 17, which says, For it is the time for judgment to begin in the household of at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So Peter picks up the household language, which he started in chapter two. And he talks about us being set apart as the household of God. And then he overlays all of biblical history where God always began judgment with his own people. He always began judgment with his own people who had rejected him. And and so in history, he always begins again with his own people. And judgment when Christ returns will begin with God's own people again. And it may sound strange because you think, well, as a Christ follower, I think I'm exempt from judgment. Let's go back to the police illustration. If there's a radar trap at the side of the road and you, and you pass by the radar trap and you are not pulled over for speeding, does that mean that you have not been judged? No, the radar judges everyone who drives by. You weren't pulled over because you weren't speeding. You passed judgment. But actually judgment is the same for everyone who drives by. The same is true When Christ returns, judgment is the same for all. And he starts with his own people, but because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and you putting your faith in Christ, your judgment has been passed. It's not that you're not judged. It's that he clears you of the judgment because of what he did on the cross and you put your faith in him. You're not exempted from it. You actually pass through it. And that's why judgment begins with God's people. But there's also a practical side to judgment a practical side to persecution that, that has benefits in our lives. In point five in your outline, God works to strengthen our faith and grow our trust in him. 
God works to strengthen our faith and grow our trust in him. Just as a loving father brings discipline to his children, so God brings discipline uh, to us. And that can often happen in persecution, which refines our faith and strengthens us. And if God is holy and just, that means that his judgment has to be the same for all people. But because of our relationship with Jesus, it impacts us quite differently than for those who do not know him. And God saves us as his people, increasingly through that perseverance, Uh, through the purifying and refining process that happens in suffering. And I know from my own experience that that my faith has grown the most in the deepest and darkest moments of my life. Those places where I'm at those crossroads and go, Jesus, do I still trust you? And through turmoil, going, yes, I do. Whether that's been self-inflicted suffering whether that's just been poor, like poor choices I've made or it's been persecution for my faith. It's happened in all different ways. Whether I'm standing there trying to make excuses, like Adam, and having to come around and own my behavior. But it's in those moments where I, when I look back, I go, that's the place I grew. And you know who else grew the same way? It was Jesus. Hebrews 5 Verse 8 says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And if Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, why would we not learn obedience the same way that Jesus did? Through our own suffering. We may not be able to choose security or comfort or safety, but we can always choose obedience. That rests in our will, in our desire. The other things may not. That may be at the hand of other people. But the choice for obedience always rests with us. Our suffering refines our faith. That is the reality of what it does. But think about what it means for those who do not know Jesus. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 4 says, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous are scarcely saved, so if people are struggling to come through, and we know that there are fewer people in this world than more that will follow Jesus. There's many parables in Scripture that show us that. That is the reality. And I believe that's the reference to scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and of of the sinner? Peter makes the point that those who reject God's gospel will suffer much more than the Christ follower who suffers persecution for identifying with Jesus Christ in this lifetime. Now today I know there are many preachers who will tell you there will be no suffering at the end. There will be no judgment at the end. Everyone, God will accept everyone. Everyone will make it into the kingdom of heaven regardless of what they decided today. You could probably spend 10 minutes on the web this afternoon to find those sermons. Friends, let me, I can't be more clear. It's a lie. It's a lie. There is no biblical evidence for this teaching. It flies in the face of justice. It flies in the face of God's saving work. And I think it actually flies in the face of human dignity. Why do I say that? Because God respects us enough to give us a choice. God respects you enough to give you a choice. He's done his part of his work. He died on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ. He paid the price for your sins. He made it possible for you to have a relationship with him, but he will not do for you what you need to do for yourself, which is to choose him. Because he honors you. 
Because he respects you. Because he made you. Because he loves you. And friends, that's why it's so important to us. That's why every week, at some point in the service, you hear the opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. We do that every week because it's so important to God, because God loves you, because we love you. And in five minutes, you'll have an opportunity again. If you haven't made that decision, I'll lead you through that process again. It's because your decisions matter. And this is the most important decision you could ever make in your life, is the decision to follow Jesus. And that's the great good news, always, every day, is the free gift that we can respond to because of Christ's work on the cross. The last verse in this section, verse 19, is great news. Peter writes, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The last point in your outline, you can trust God to take care of you to the end of time. You can trust God to take care of you to the end of time. The word entrust in this passage is a banking term. It means to deposit for safekeeping. So when you have money, you want to put it within an institution that you know that money will be there when you want it back. Right? You're, you entrust your, your funds to an institution for safekeeping. That's, that's what that word means. And what Peter says here is when you deposit your life with God, you have nothing to fear for he is able to keep you. Your soul is secure with him. It will not be harmed. It is, you are with your creator and you're safe till the end of time as you follow him. Because God is trustworthy. Your creator is true and safe and just. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who defeated sin and evil. And at the end of time, all justice will be brought to bear on this earth. And there will no, be no more pain and no more suffering. He says, what do you do in the meantime? He says, do good. Right? And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does it mean to do good? I think Jesus gives a great description in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Very simple. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If someone is opposed to you in your, in your family, social, or work circle, if they behave like an enemy, what do you do? You love them. If someone hates you for following Jesus, do good to them. If someone curses you and slanders you for following Jesus, bless them. If someone abuses you for following Jesus, pray for them. There's the definition of doing good. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. That's what Jesus calls us to. As Christ followers, we live in hope. Why? Because we believe Jesus is coming back. And we are filled with his presence through the power of the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to obey his word and live with the end in mind. If we don't know Christ, we are actually living, our present rather is controlled by our past. If we do know Christ, our present is controlled by our future because of the coming glory that we await when Jesus will return. And Jesus invites you to live, to live your life aligned with his and see your struggles as opportunity to draw close to him and point people to him. It's the goodness of our God, the grace of our God, and the presence of the Spirit of God and the glory of God that rests on those who suffer for the sake of Christ. It is the wonderful future he has called us to. And I said at the beginning, this isn't a very Canadian sermon because as Canadians, we're not used to suffering. 
As Canadians, we have expectations of our rights and the place of Christianity within Canada. But we are coming to a place now where Canada is looking more and more like the rest of the world. And friends, that's fine. That's fine. It's not familiar to us, but it's fine. Why? Because we serve a risen Lord. Why? Because God is real. Because his presence is real. Why? Because the Spirit of God is present with God's people. Why? Because it'll grow our faith in stronger and stronger. Why? Because God wants, him to, wants to be glorified through us as we point people to him and they are transformed forever as we await his coming kingdom. That's why. Let's stand for closing prayer. I want to close with two prayers. The first one, as I said, I'll give you the opportunity to give your life to Christ if you've never done that. And uh, the prayer will be on the screen and you can pray quietly with me. If you do pray this prayer, I would invite you either, I'd love to talk with you after the service or you can go to the Welcome Center that's just outside of the lobby there. And there's people who would love to guide you and help you grow in your walk with Christ as you step out in that journey. And after that, I will pray for us as a whole. So pray with me if you would like to give your life to Jesus. God, I desire to know you personally. Please forgive me for leading my own life and rejecting your love. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I ask you to forgive my sins. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. Thank you, God, for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, I pray. And Father, I want to thank you for this morning. And I want to thank you that I know in a room like this, there are people who are suffering in various ways. Some are suffering uh, problems of health and struggle and finances. And, and Lord, you are with them in those struggles. Father, I pray that we as a faith community, as we learn of these things, we can walk with each other. Father, I pray for your peace and your strength and your, and your encouragement to walk with them through those very real human problems. Father, for those who are struggling because of the name of Christ, perhaps they've been ostracized from their families, perhaps they've been shamed in their workplaces or, or, or uh, been victims of slander or hate. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to pour out of them. I pray for a spirit of encouragement, a spirit of power and strength to come out on them, Father. And I pray, Father, that you would fill us all with a spirit of compassion for people who don't know you. Father, for those who need to repent for being meddlers, Father, that you would touch our own hearts for the things that we need to repent of in that category where we self-justify our behavior and somehow claim it is for the sake of Christ when really it's not. And Father, we will treat people the way you do with grace and with love and with honor. And we will bless those who persecute us. We will pray for those who curse us. We will give our best because you gave yours. And Father, as we go into this week, I pray that we will walk as people of a, walk in obedience as we identify with you and you will give us the strength to do so and we will be your agents of love and grace and compassion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go in God's peace.